Hi, I'm Mara Webster with In Creative Company, and today I'm so thrilled to be joined by the wonderful Claire Foy to talk all about her movie, All of Us Strangers. And I want to just start by talking about just the, the fact that it sounds like you had an incredibly visceral, emotional response just to reading the script when you first read it. Um, and I was interested in how that kind of translated into the, the performance that you wanted to give and the way that you wanted to kind of translate some of those emotions that you had in the experience of reading it into the way that you were playing this character. Yeah, um, I think they were actually very separate because the character that I play, who's Andrew Scott's mum in the movie, is um, is of a generation who um, self-awareness or being emotionally um, engaged with yourself is not particularly um, prevalent, I'd say, or definitely not prevalent in her character. Um, I think that, you know, I think we're so used to now having a pretty modern way of discussing our emotions or um, issues. And I think that that's just not how everyone else has been brought up, basically. And so I knew that I couldn't ever get ahead of the fact that because obviously when you're reading the script, you know, the artifice of the story, which is that he his parents died when he was 12 and he is going back to his childhood home for some sort of catharsis or um, to heal himself in some way. And in doing that, he meets his parents um, and they meet him as an adult. And um, so it was very difficult for me to emotionally get carried away because I didn't think that was correct into how she responds about things and how she's also trying to, they're sort of out of place in time. You know, they're not, um, there isn't like a supernatural element to the film in the sense that obviously they're dead, but there they are. Um, but they're not um, they're not emotionally engaged, I suppose, in the same way um, that you are. Like when you watch something, I'm hysterically quiet, everything, but that doesn't necessarily mean the character should be, I suppose. And it, it's so interesting to look at that scope of when we first meet your character, in essence, it's through the space of a memory um, mm. and this kind of arrested development space and time. And I was interested in whether it was helpful to think about that at all or whether it was just about playing to the grounded truth of your character, you know, to her, she's kind of in the presence because there is some self-awareness that we see from her later on about the situation that they're all in and the fact that this isn't a standard reality for them. Mm. Yeah, I, it definitely, I think we realized really early on that it had to be rooted in like basically that moment. Um, if you started asking too many questions about the reality of what it's like to be a soul that has returned, um, it became too unknown and too uh, the whole thing sort of fell apart. And so you had to just play this sort of strange, like um, hyper presence, um, which makes sense because it there is no reason, you know, the fact that we all have souls and we die and, um, you know, then we're born and, I, I, that's no stranger to me than the idea that you can recall someone um, in such a significant way for you that you can, you know, um, engage with them in some way. I think b being a human being is, and living on a big planet rotating in the universe is, is an odd concept in itself. And so this seemed actually pretty truthful to me. And, and also the fact that they've been brought back by him then you know in a way that they are his versions of what he needs so that's why all the costumes are very particular and it was a very sort of visceral experience because you it's all about smell when you're younger and what you remember about your parents and touch and 
all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely didn't, I, you know, I couldn't do what I know given circumstances, like where was I coming from and going to, and, but you could root it in the, the reality of who that person was pre their death, which was, you know, what their upbringing was, how they would respond to things, the, the, the world in which they're living in, you know, um, that was all there, but it just wasn't, you know, you know, whether they could eat or not wasn't really, you know, the question that we asked, I think. I mean, I, I love that you're bringing up the costumes as well, because the first time that we see your character, you know, she's not expecting him to show up. And so she's dressed more casually. We see that kind of like green tracksuit look that you have earlier on. And then it feels like she's kind of more dressed up because there's this anticipation and hopefulness that he'll return to them. So mm. how did the costumes help to chart the character for you? Yeah, I mean, I think they were all very specific to memories that you'd have. So one of them, yeah, is that like teal, lovely, velour tracksuit, which I just thought would be what you would like, because it's soft and it's touchable and it's such a bright colour and it's so 80s that you would totally remember your mum wearing that. And then um, a couple more of the outfits are obviously the outfit that they wear at Christmas is very 80s specific as well but it's velvet and it's like that sort of Meg Ryan neckline um and uh I think it's they're sort of reliving their life and that you know that that moment specifically there's a photograph taken he's going back into those memories as they were so all of the costumes were very much going back in time and going back to a particular moment where you would remember there would be no ambiguity in your head I remember when my mum wore that jumper I remember when she what colour her nails were painted like all of those things were yeah we were just basically dressing in his memories really and with with what you were saying before as well about she's a version of herself that he remembered and that he needed her to be in that space and time we kind of see that experience of the way that you grow up and you kind of, you see your parents as your parents. And then as you grow older, you really see them as these fully fleshed out people. Mm -hmm. And we see that happen with your character in real time. So how did that kind of shift and evolve the trajectory of the character in, in your viewpoint as he starts to really see her and understand her in a way that he never got to as a small child? Yeah, that's what he's getting to do is basically having a chance to, to reclaim that and to weirdly have uh, an adolescence and a, and a early 20, like the whole experience in in a very short space of time. But they are too as well. And you can see that once they start learning more than they should know, and once they start asking questions they shouldn't be asking, they know that the time's up in a way. They know that this can't continue and that it has to end and and that it's not good for them as much as it's not good for him because you know my character has a line which is like it will never be enough there will never be enough of each other because that would be a lifetime and they don't have they didn't have a lifetime together and he's got to live his life and be in, be alive now and by living in the past he's not being and that's what he's got to come to terms with as well um so yeah i think it was like a, a combination of having to um, not get ahead of the character and not ask too many questions, but also allow the character to evolve in that scenario and their understanding to evolve. And that also, once they've learned one bit of information, they can't ever take it back. And once they've learned, um, you know, that she that he went to live with her mother back in Ireland, she can never take back the feeling of regret and the feeling of, 
being um, left out of his life and that she didn't have that experience and jealousy, I suppose, and bitterness and all of those feelings are existing in them, even though they're not living anymore. Um, uh, yeah, that's the question. <laughs> I also I wanted to talk about the the scene where they're all in laying in bed together and you know Andrew Scott's character Adam has come and kind of like climbed in because he can't sleep well but at this point he's a fully grown man wearing childlike pajamas and it's the three of you and just that scene where it's the two of you face to face where mm -hmm. it was all filmed in one take um, which I heard was quite challenging in terms of just like the film role would like literally run out before the end of the scene some of the takes that you were doing and I was just interested in the even just the logistics of that scene coming together and just working with that volume of dialogue when it's such an emotional core yeah I mean I didn't really remember it's funny that I didn't remember that the mag running out as like a a significant part of that scene I think that's probably because I was so it we were in a teeny tiny bedroom because we filmed in Andrew Andrew Haig's house the director's house that he grew up in and he left when he was nine and so none of the rooms were meant to be filmed in and so they were teeny tiny so there wasn't a lot of space and I remember there being a scaffolding over the bed with a with you know the camera operator like lying down staring at us on the scaffolding. So I suppose in reality you could feel very observed or feel like it wasn't very intimate. But as soon as Andrew walked through the door and then was in the bed, it was so intimate. And he was we were right this close, whispering to each other. So there, I didn't feel like we were performing. I didn't feel like we were doing anything apart from just being with each other. Um, in a way, I mean there was you know technicalities about the fact that actually we had to make sure that. Jamie had to swap places with Paul in the bed because then Paul comes into the bed afterwards and there wasn't a lot of space. That was quite a funny thing to try and come to terms with. Of those things about um, making something is that the energy of how you approach a scene does come across on, on screen. I think all the energy that we put into that and the fact that it was one take and all that sort of stuff, it does come across because it means more, I suppose. And in general, with the way that Andrew has used the camera and directing all of your performances, it very much feels like the camera is kind of like slowly following and finding you. So when it's like the three of you all decorating the Christmas tree, the camera is kind of just like moving around in that space versus it being so much about set coverage. So I was just interested in how that kind of really helped you just to kind of live and breathe and play in scenes. Yeah, I mean, um, the DOP was incredible. And I, I, I think I, I never really... You know, the camera can be quite an intrusive element to making things. But for me, it never really is. I, I I feel very comfortable with the camera being in those moments. It doesn't feel fake in a weird way. And I think maybe that's I've been really lucky to work with like amazing DOPs and amazing camera operators who don't make it feel like they're like there's this giant like whirring machine in the room. But I think because it was handheld and... um or steady cam like a lot that just allow, gives fluidity to the and also allows the camera operator to go to where they think the narrative is happening in a way and they can just use their instinct to follow the emotion in the room which gives you a lot of freedom as an actor because it means that you you're acting the whole time it's not that thing where you suddenly got your close-up and it's like all the pressure's on you you're, you're just in the scene and acting all the time and if anyone picks up on something that's great and if they don't then you you're just doing it so um I love working with stuff where the, where it's like um being you know not static not on sticks it's like actually the hammer's been picked up and moved around 
I love that. And and in speaking of that scene with the Christmas tree decorating, um, I was interested in just how you thought about the fact that your character starts gradually singing Pet Shop Boys always on on my mind because it's this kind of like it's it's not this sudden like I'm singing along fully fledged to all the words. There's this kind of quiet entry point into it. So how did you find the the space that you wanted that to live in? Yeah, I think she doesn't even know she's doing it, basically. I think the only person that knows that she's doing it is him, is Adam, um, Andrew's character, because I think that she doesn't have the words to say what she wants to say, nor could she even after singing that. She couldn't say what he wants to hear and she wouldn't be able to articulate it herself, which is, I love you and I'm sorry that I've never given you what you need. I did my best, but basically I thought about you all the time I cared about you and loved you the whole time and I'm you know and I should have told I should have told you that shouldn't I um and that's what she wants to say but she can't she doesn't have the emotional capacity to do that really um and or you know all the vulnerability I suppose in a way and um but that but she's able the words are coming out of her mouth and the intention is there and he's receiving it that way and that, in a way, is more touching, I suppose, than if she was just sitting him down and saying everything that he wanted to hear. Um, I mean, I dreaded it because I hate, you know, I'm a terrible singer. Um, but I realised that it wasn't really, and actually, weirdly, probably being a terrible singer makes it even sweeter in a way because <laughs> because she's not doing it to have her voice heard. And I also love the fact that then Jamie, Jamie Bell just sort of, barnstorms at the end and like comes in and takes over the whole song um yeah but I didn't I it's just a very very lovely sweetly observed you know moment in the story by Andrew Haig that he could have that live in that sweet little moment and it not have to be some 15 page monologue Absolutely. And I, I love the way that you're kind of describing the fact that there's all these things that she wants to be able to say, but she doesn't have the facets and the capacity to do that, because that also feels really prevalent in the the kitchen scene where he comes out to her in the questions that she's asking and the fears that she has. And it, again, it's very much she's arrested in a very specific time period where she doesn't even know that gay marriage is a legal thing in the present day because she hasn't lived to see that. Um, and so was that very similar that there was like a real undercurrent of, you know, love and protection but just not having the knowledge and the words to say the things that she wanted in that moment yeah and ultimately you have to remember that being um gay in the 80s was really dangerous um that was the the perceived mainstream idea that was being pumped out um the AIDS epidemic was you know killing so many people that um and it was particularly within a certain community and that community was then stigmatized because of that. And so it was dangerous from every angle, really. Um, and so a terrifying notion, you know, that, that she says, why, why would anyone wish that on their child? I don't know why anyone wish that on their child. Um, and I think that um, that's not said from a point of causing someone pain. It's ignorance, but it's also she's not she's been left out like from her point of view she's left out she doesn't know who her son is she it's another sign that she's not been there she's not been there to get to know him to look after him she's not given him what he, she needs and that she's not um involved in his life 
in any real way. And so it just compounds the fact that she feels like she doesn't know him anymore. And he's saying that he's someone different than, than what she knew. And that's terrifying. Um, but yeah, I think that's the thing. She doesn't have the word. She doesn't have, you know, so often I heard people talking about um, coming out to their parents, their parents saying, oh, we love you anyway. Or, um, you know, we love you regardless. Um, which is really interesting to hear people's response to the fact that, you know, that's, you should be saying, we love you anyway. <laughs> like we love you even if you are gay. Um, okay. Uh, that shouldn't, you know, it, it, that shouldn't be the case. It should be that you just love me as I am. Um, and that this isn't a negative attribute either I have. Um, but those, those conversations, I don't think very rarely take a simple um, root. I think it'd be very different now. I think it'd be very different in the generations to come. But with people who live through the 80s, with people who live, you know, through any recent history when it was illegal to be gay, like they have a completely different set of values and understanding of what that means for the people who are, and also um, how it will be viewed by society. Um, and I think you have to show those things I, to be able to have compassion for those people and also have compassion for the understanding of why it would be so terrifying for people to come out to their parents um, because the judgment and criticism and um, as well as societal judgment is not what you should have to endure. Absolutely. And, and also in talking about some of the other facets of the character, there's such a telling line later in the film where she's talking to her son and kind of saying like, I saw your partner through the window, you know, kind of, I hope that you'll give it a go with him. And she says that a line about seeing a real sadness in Harry's eyes. Mm -hmm. And that was so telling to me because that means that she's someone who has really experienced that herself to be able to see it so vividly in someone that she hasn't even interacted directly with in that moment. Um, and so for you, where did you feel like that came from when you read pieces like that in the script? Yeah, I think she was very unfulfilled. Um, I think that a lot of uh, women were of that generation. She reminded me a lot of, of people that I know um, in the sense that she wanted her child to live the life that she had, which is have a nice wife, have children, have a house. Um, but she didn't know why she wanted that to be the case because it wasn't as if she particularly enjoyed it. I can imagine if she had lived and she uh, and Adam had grown up and he had come out to her when he was 16, they would have had the most wonderful life together of him educating her, of him, you know, reading to her, to taking her to the theatre, you know, like giving her experiences that she by that point wouldn't have had. I think she was from an Irish immigrant family um, and I think that shaking off what you're supposed to do for, in my experience, that generation is very difficult. Like what you're supposed to do and what you want to do, what you want to do is selfish. Um, and you should do what you're supposed to do. I think that led her, that character to be quite unfulfilled. Um, and also had a son who she couldn't work out who didn't want to talk to her, who didn't want to share with her and who she couldn't reach. And so was probably deeply frustrated by that as well. So I think, yeah, the sadness, knowing that he, but also knowing what happens in the film later, that could also be connected to that. 
as well. And and with some of the details that you got to decide for yourself, um, I saw something where you and Jamie Bell were talking about coming up with names for your characters because in the script they're just mum and dad, their character <laughs> names. And for you it was Moira, and for Jamie it was Alan. So how did you decide that she was the Moira to you? <laughs> I don't know. I think she don't think she was. It had to be something Irish. Um, and uh, I don't know why she's Moira. She just strikes me as one. A Moira or a Maureen. My nanny was called Maureen, my my grandmother. So um, I don't know. It just feels completely right. I don't know whether that's because it's an M from also mum. Yeah, and I can just imagine Moira being a great, great, you know, older mother with her wonderful, fabulous son. And they just have a great time together. And she goes around Paul and Andrew's house and stays for the weekend. And they just and they, they love her and sort of worship her in some way and her perm that I imagine she would keep. And you and Andrew also have these really beautiful, intricate moments of of touch between your characters as well. Like when she's talking about the time that he injured his hand and kind of touching that part of him very specifically. But then there's the moment where she says something where he emotionally withdraws and he kind of pulls his hand back. Um, so how did you kind of find those various moments where it felt very right to your characters to be so close and to have moments of touch like that? Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you've when you've grown another human in your body, like it's very difficult. To, I mean, I'm still at the stage, my daughter's eight, so I'm still at the stage where she still cuddles me and touches me like relentlessly. So I'm still in that. I, I know that my mum, my mum always does this thing where she cuddles us and then her hand sort of lingers on our bum and we're like, get off, ugh, gross. Um, and she'd be like, what, what? And I do, like, I do it. It's like just because of your physical, like, closeness to the to that child that you grew um is I suppose that thing of you're always reaching out for that touch as a reassurance we're so reassured by touch people um and sometimes it replaces language as, you know, as a way of reassuring us that we're okay or making us feel like we're not alone um and so I I think she's longing she just wants to get her hands on him and she just can't wait to <laughs> she just wants to cuddle him and kiss him and she's from the beginning she's like kissing his face or you know when she sees him with his like or, like getting to just take clothes off and he's like shy about it and she's like why why are you shy about taking your clothes off like that sort of you know parental refrain have I changed your nappy like that thing but it's difficult to let that go as I think as a parent not that you should have to necessarily either but you have to control yourself and rein it in because they're no longer your property, not they ever were, but also you don't have a right. I'm teaching my children, my child about body bubbles at the moment about <laughs> consent. Um, and that definitely plays a part in it. But I do think there's an inherent heartbreak and sadness in seeing a parent hold that back or be rejected in that way by not wanting to have that in physical intimacy because they're because of their age or they're just a bit like grossed out by it. And that's so heartbreaking because not only do they have to live with the fact that their child is doesn't want them in that way, but they've sort of lost that and they'll never get that back again. I can't bear it. Oh, it's coming for me at some point. Hopefully not anytime soon. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I mean, that that idea of reassurance of, of physical touch as well, was that something that was very prevalent to you in the diner scene when they start to all realise, you know, we, we've had the time that we've had and this is going to be the end of it. And she's in that moment where they can touch each other, but she can't see him in that moment. 
Yeah, I think um, that was a really hard scene to play, but also just sort of came out of us in a way that Andrew wanted it to be a goodbye that they didn't get to have. Um, and and it making it some sort of like um, time had sped up and suddenly they were having that and they were slipping through his fingers really quickly. Um, and yeah, I mean, my character, you find out in this story, lost her eye in the car crash that they had and so her sight was gone um and also in the same way that she sort of aged a hundred years in that moment and that you could imagine that maybe in that moment she was an elderly lady who couldn't see and um was saying goodbye to her son um and yeah touch yeah touch did definitely become very important in that um and it, but it's like it's like I said earlier, like it's all a memory. It's all memory, um, and and the the film is already a memory even before it's you know it starts as soon as it starts, it's already over before it starts. If you know what I mean, that they'll be they'll be missing each other. They're missing each other while they're with, when they're with, with with each other. Basically, is the is the feeling. And and how did it shift things for you in that scene as well when it's, you know, essentially his parents are asking him about their death, you know, was it quick? Oh, I've always wondered about this because that was such an interesting esoterical conversation to watch between the three of them. Yeah, I mean, I definitely knew that, yeah, my character didn't want to know, but was relieved when she did find out. And she also didn't believe him because she knew that he was protecting her. I think everybody at some, in some way is afraid of, death and the fin finality of it and and how yours is going to come I suppose and wouldn't it be great if we all just knew how it was going to happen so we could prepare ourselves for it but you couldn't anyway like in the same way you can't prepare for how a child comes out it's never going to be the way you think it is um and so I think there's a fear of pain and fear of um being wounded and hurt in some way and um interesting that the the father needs to know and she's happy not to know she's happy to live with not knowing and um and also I think it's that thing that there are that they know their times that they're going and maybe they need that piece to be able to leave I don't know like there's so much you could ask about it and so much you could say about it that is difficult with this film because you sort of don't want to tie it down to anything in a way because it would take away the magic of what what the film's done really yeah, well, it's it's such a stunning performance that you've given and it's such a beautiful film and I always love your thought process on everything that goes into this. So thank you so much, Claire. I really appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank you. I love your thought process too. You always ask the best questions.